hundred years. Take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now. What's the plan now? Gotta get it done. No time for fun now. Take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now. What's the plan now? Gotta move on. Who the f is Mike Young? Would like to thank our incredible sponsor, Blue Team. Ain't nothing funny about a commercial disaster or renovation project. Blue Team handles all aspects of construction, roofing, and disaster recovery for commercial property owners and operators throughout the U.S. No company comes even close to Blue Team. Blue Team handles the projects from start to finish so our clients can focus on running their business, and that is no joke. Call the experts at Blue Team at 855-522-2583. Blue Team. Anywhere, anytime. Welcome to another episode of Who the F is Mike Young as I pace around my apartment calmly, alone, staring, looking, pacing, thinking. What do I want to talk about today? Well, I already know what I want to talk about today. It's obvious. It's almost been 30 years to the day since my dad passed away. And a lot of podcasts and a lot of people don't really talk about where they're from or what they're about, but that's the reason I named my podcast Who the F is Mike Young, because I figure, you know what, if I'm not on stage doing personal comedy, I might as well express it somehow and let you know who I am, because like I said, I got a lot of, not a lot, but I got a few DMs and a few messages from people going, are you the guy that Bobby Lee tells the story about when Bobby Lee went up to these guys' house and you were there and he didn't want to come into the party and you almost got him arrested for going to a motel and did when he was on Mad TV? Are you Mike Young? Is that you? Yeah, that's me. Then Joe Rogan is talking about one of my bits about drugs on to his show to Brian Callen and I get a call from a or a DM and messages on my Facebook and my Instagram. Yo, Mike, is this you? Are you the guy that Rogan's talking about? Yo, Rogan always talks. So yes, I'm him, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna get personal for a second. I'm gonna tell a story because that's what I do on here. I tell stories. My whole goal in life was to live stories, write about stories, and then talk about them and make a living by telling stories. So that's what I do. Okay, I'm not the greatest storyteller. I've seen some amazing storytellers in their day. I've seen some of the greatest storytellers. I personally think Joey Diaz is one of the best storytellers of all time. I saw him on stage last night weaving a tail, gripping and amazing. But I'm going to tell you a story that kind of tells you where I come from without telling you exactly where I come from. But it's been 30 years almost to the day since my dad passed away. My dad, Sam Young, uh, knew a lot of people in Detroit. He was not the mayor. He was not the chief of police. He was not the most wealthy guy. He was not the most famous person. But for some reason, there were about 1,100 people at his funeral. And when 1,100 people show up at your funeral, you got to say, I touched a lot of people in my life. How did I touch a lot of people? How did I connect with so many people in a time where there was no internet? There was no social media. There was no... None of this. This is straight human connection. And people always come to me, they're like, Mike, you're so bad on social media. You should have way. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to stick to my beliefs that word of mouth and human connection and looking someone in the eyes and talking and meeting people and being in a room is still powerful. 
I get it. I'm not, a, I'm not saying the internet is not powerful. I'm not saying your 7 million views on YouTube doesn't mean that you weren't funny. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying for my energy, for my style, for what I do, I like human connection. So I thought I got to give a tribute to my dad 30 years after his passing. I was 19 years old when he passed away. And it basically changed my life. It changed my brother's life. It changed my mom's life. It changes your life when you lose a loved one. Now, I was already unfortunately schooled in the art of funerals. I could basically carry a casket, you know, with one hand at this point. I've picked them out. I've carried them. I know my position. I know, unfortunately, I grew up in a family where tragedy somehow hit us every year for 10 years straight. Somebody that we loved and knew and that was in our family died. We just had a bad luck streak. Three suicides, two cancers, a couple heart attacks. I I joke about it on stage because I say basically on stage, I'm like, listen, if you're a woman in your 30s and your parents are still married and nobody has a chemical imbalance in your family and you're not afraid of any of your cousins at Thanksgiving, I got nothing to talk to you about. And obviously it's a joke, but there's some truth there because I've been through a lot and so has my family. And so I wanted to give you a story and a tribute to my dad just to let you know what kind of guy he was. So cut to years ago, my dad was an athlete. He was a runner. My, all my friends in Southfield around the D- Detroit area, they would see my dad jogging all the time. He was famous in the neighborhood. Every morning, you'd see him running. We'd be going to school. There's my dad in his little jogging shorts, going super slow, the slowest pace known to man, but could run forever. And if you didn't see him in the neighborhood, then you could go catch him at Southfield Athletic Club, you know, running there. Or you could catch him at Franklin Racquet Club, the next club. My dad always belonged to a health club. And before he belonged to the Franklin Racquet Club, he ran a place called the Southfield Athletic Club. Now... This year, The Irishman came out. It's about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa disappeared uh, disappeared in the suburbs of Detroit. He disappeared two miles away from where we grew up. And my dad, and you can fact check if you want, my dad ran a place called the Southfield Athletic Club from like 78 to 83 or 4. And the Southfield Athletic Club was the headquarters at the time for the Detroit syndicate, for the mob. And my dad wasn't a gangster. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a dope dealer. My dad wasn't any of that. He was just a lovable dude who guys like that trusted, you know, and you could just say he's an associate or he's a friend of. But my dad used to run this club and the club was the most amazing place on the planet. And years later, you know, maybe four or five years ago, no, what am I talking about? Two years ago, I had written a pilot about the Southfield Athletic Club Eminem and Paul Rosenberg are are attached until further notice to be executive producers on this show. Bottom line is there's never been a place like the Southfield Athletic Club that I've seen anywhere in history. And it's a low profile place. Not a lot of people know about it. My dad was what you call the, the athletic director. He made sure the place was open, closed, made sure everybody you know who needed their lunch had their proper tables. If the guys needed an office to work or have a meeting in, my dad gave him the office. My dad was also a semi-pro and then a professional racquetball player so he could teach racquetball, go play some tournaments, come back, and just kind of float in the middle of this crazy, crazy world. And at the athletic club... The mob belonged there. The judges belonged there. Politicians were there. High-powered lawyers. 
you know, well-connected doctors, big-time businessmen. This was the Casablanca of Detroit. That's just a fact. Now, I know some people from Detroit are going to listen to this and go, no, the Detroit Athletic Club had all the big money guys. Well, that's fine. They could have whoever they want. But the Southwood Athletic Club, just like my dad, was low profile, and, you know, that's the, that's the way they wanted it. You know, they weren't flashy guys. This was not like a braggadocious place to go. This was Tommy the Hitman Hearns, a six-time world champion. He's going to come in and have a lunch, and he wants to talk to a couple of the, of, the, of, the, of the guys in the syndicate that maybe want to do business down the line. They have that lunch at the Southwood Athletic Club. Fact. So my dad was a connected guy. He was well-respected, and he was just really hilarious and loved. And so I wanted to just tell the story of what he really was like towards the end of his life. My dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when I was in college. There was one weekend, me and my boys went to Vegas to meet my dad. And my dad, throughout my entire life, he always had connections to Vegas. And this is something that maybe even my, some of my relatives don't know. But we would go there for free, basically. And when I was a kid, my dad would take me and my brother and my mom to Vegas. And we would be like, you know, 8, 10, or 10, and 12-year-old kids running around Vegas like we owned the place. There were championship fights at Caesars Palace. There were everything. And my dad was just always had the connections, and it was from the guys he knew in Detroit. Because if you look at your history, go watch The Irishman if you want. When Jimmy Hoffa was given the money to go build casinos in Vegas, they had a lot of pull because they owned the hotels. So my life always revolved around Vegas. And when I got to L.A. and I became a comedian and all my boys who were, you know, I got to be friends with a lot of guys who were famous and getting treated like kings in Vegas, I never really wanted to tell them that I did all this stuff when I was 12 because I didn't want to seem like I was bragging about knowing my way around Vegas. But the fact is I had been in four or five bedroom suites in Caesars Palace as a young dude and saw a lot of, you know, saw a lot and was very well connected. So my dad... And my friends and everybody's we're on vacation in Vegas for four days. And my dad's not looking great. He's just not looking that good in Vegas. And I can I can see something's off. His his neck looks skinny. He's a little bit yellow. And my friends are there. And my dad's kind of putting on a happy face. He's gambling. My dad was super funny. He was always funny and he was all about me and my brother and my mom. And I remember he was sitting at the table with my one of my best friends at the time growing up, Lee, Lee Tushman. He's sitting at the table and my dad's gambling and every hand my dad's going, kids need shoes, kids need, kids aren't getting shoes. Come on, kids, kids need food at school, college food, kids aren't getting college food. Every hand he lost, he just would joke about. And he was just the life of the party. My dad was the life of the party. Growing up, we went to a bunch of bar mitzvahs and my dad was like a star. He was like a neighborhood star just because of his personality. He was that just lovable guy. And he was the type of guy that just saw good in people. Like, I had hood friends, shady friends, friends that became criminals later in life. But my dad, when we were young, he would just look at those guys and be like, yo, they just need love. They just need something. There's, there's good in them. They got work ethic. They could do this. You know, my dad just believed in people when they didn't believe in themselves. He just was a gifted angel on earth type of person who also had to be, you know, who was also connected to the underworld. So if anything ever went down, he could make a call and make the, he he didn't want to make that call. He was a lovable person, but he knew the people, you know, like quick side note, I got bullied as a 10 year old in my first house on Redleaf Lane in Southfield 
big 17, 18 year old redneck bully piece of junk human being used to come smack me around every day on my way home, kick me on the ground, whoop my ass, blow off quarter sticks of dynamite type of redneck shit in the street. And every day I come in the house crying and it's the same story because I'm just, I'm like 10 or whatever age you are in middle school or younger. And I can't really defend myself because he's a giant. So I either got to get a BB gun and shoot him or I can't. There's just nothing to do with this guy. And he's got like these redneck friends, like the type of rednecks that you see in movies, like not the banjo playing, more like the outsiders type of dudes, like the outsiders, like the dirty dudes with the guns and the jean jackets and blow off dynamite and pull off robbery and beat up kids, you know, just real bad, bad apples. So probably like the seventh or eighth time I got my ass whooped, I come inside crying, and again I'm crying. This dude was so bad that I used to have dreams about taking him to juvenile prison before I even knew what a juvenile prison was. I would just have dreams about this guy in a cage. He was bad news. And I don't want to say his name because he's alive, and I Google Earth his house every now and then, and he's still around, so I don't want to say his name. So the eighth time, ninth time, tenth time, I get my ass whooped. I come in the house, and I'm crying. And before I can even say, Dad, blah, 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 hit, I see my dad run past me, run outside into the street. And I look, and from my point of view, I just see my dad like a professional boxer just throwing haymakers, jabs, right hand, boom, 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 boom. He just whoops this kid's ass all the way onto the porch of his own house, into his own house, I don't know if my dad went in the house. I don't know what happened. After that, four days later, there was a for sale sign on the house of this person. And I'm not saying that my dad made a call, but I'm just saying that my dad probably had a conversation and life was going to go way south for them if they didn't move. And that was love for his kids. But that wasn't the story that I wanted to tell. So I want to tell this story about when my dad did get sick and when we were in Vegas and he was looking terrible and he was not looking good, he was looking jaundiced, we knew something was wrong. You know, and I thought maybe it was just some sort of virus or I didn't know much. I didn't think it was anything heavy. But my dad was not looking good. I have a cousin, Scott Young, Dr. Young. He's a doctor in Vegas. He's looking at my dad. He's telling my dad, Sam, you don't look too good. I think you need to get checked out. That weekend... Sunday night, my mom and my dad, they fly home from Vegas. They're on their way back to Detroit. My dad gets violently ill on the airplane. He gets so sick that they have to go to Ann Arbor Medical Center when he gets there. They go to Ann Arbor Medical Center at the University of Michigan. My dad's best friend is one of the heads of surgery at another hospital. He meets them up there. They go, they run a battery of tests on my dad, and it comes back that my dad has cancer. And it's heavy. Now, I don't know this yet. I get a phone call from my mom on, a, on Monday, the next day, while I'm in college. Me and my brother are in school. And my mom said, I'll never forget because my mom just goes, are you sitting down? And this is like, I've already been to 10 funerals. My aunt, jumped, you know, my aunt shot herself. My uncle killed himself. My other uncle jumped off a bridge. My other aunt had pancreatic cancer. My grandpa passed away. Or, no, my grandma passed away. Um, you know, my other grand, my, my other grandparent passed away, my, you know, on the other side. So I, I'm schooled in the art of the depressing, sad phone call, bad news. So I get the news and my mom says, are you sitting down? I say, no. She says, sit down. Dad's got cancer, but we're going to fight this. That's those were her like exact words. We're going to fight this. So 
my dad's friend, Eduardo Phillips, who's like a best friend of the family, he calls me, says, listen, I think you should come home. Your dad might have six months to a year. This is very serious what's going on here. It's spread throughout his whole body. It's very serious. So the next day I tell all my friends at college, you know, yo, this is heavy shit. I'm going home. And they're like, whatever you need from us. And all my boys, Mike and Zach and Todd and Dean and my girl at the time, Liz, everybody kind of like rallied around us. And they knew how heavy it was because my dad, he was a staple at University of Arizona. He would visit and have more fun than we would. He'd be jogging around campus, checking out the pretty girls, like making funny comments. He was just hilarious and loved to be around the young people. You know what I mean? And now that I'm that age, I'm looking around like, yeah, my dad was, of course he liked to run around University of Arizona. The finest girls in the country are there. So... I get the call. I head back to Detroit. Me and my brother, we both go home. My brother is so distraught. He's crushed. He's going to quit school. In his mind, I'm done with He's going to quit college, and he's going to come home, and we're going to run the business. So after my dad ran the Southwood Athletic Club, he got into the scrap metal business, and my dad was known as a scrap peddler. He had a dump truck. He owned a couple other trucks around the area. The trucks would get filled up with scrap metal, and you take the trucks down 8 Mile. You go to the weigh station. You get your weight, you get your weight, then you weigh your truck again when it's empty. They split the, you know, they give you the difference on the money, and you get paid. And in the '80s, it was an amazing business because it was all cash business for a long time. And so my dad was somebody that believed in never being flashy, always have money in the bank, and if you can't afford it, don't get it. So my dad paid cash for houses, for cars, for everything. My mom has never had a payment on any of that stuff. God bless my dad for that. So. We go home. My dad's sick. I get to the house. He's looking terrible. He's basically jaundiced and he's yellow and it's just it's just a terrible. I can't I can't even explain. I hope none of you ever have to go through this. And if you do, you know, listen, you live long enough, you're going to see all these things, but for some reason and I don't know what it was, but my family saw all this stuff when we were young. You know, I I, I that's why I give I love my cousins like they're my brothers and sisters because we've all been through so much together. You know, when my aunt passed away, I drove at 16 years old, you know, seven kids in a car to go, you know, distract everybody while their mom was getting treatment. You know, I took everybody to the hospital. We were together. We were a band of thieves and if you tried to, you know, f with the family, there was a problem. Like we were to we're a tight-knit group, okay? And there was like 14 of us. And we're all, you know, the boys are all built, you know, we're all 6'2". Everybody's taking karate and boxing their whole, you know, it's a tough family. But they all, you know, we also have, you know, they also went on to be lawyers and, you know, great business people and respectable in the community. But we're also a gang of animals. We're not the Jews that you read about all the time. We're not the Bernie Madoff camp. You know, we're not investment bankers stealing from people. We are butchers and bakers and candlestick makers and crooks. We're not crooks, but you know, we, we, we'll fight you. Uh, you know, I don't love that part of, I'm a very, I like the peacefulness, but like we are that ilk. I had two great uncles that were professional boxers, both had over 50 fights in their career. One fought in Marciano's camp, one fought in Willie Pep's camp. I'm just telling this story so you get an idea like who the F I am, because that's just what you do as an artist. You just got to let people know what's coming out. So we go home, me and my brother go home. My dad is now hooked on oxygen. So I spend a week at home and 
it's getting bad and it's getting worse every day. And every day is just something worse. You know, he's coughing at night. He's, he's hooked on the oxygen. He can't eat at this point. He's done eating. My mom, I remember my mom trying to like force feed my dad and like, you know, they would get into a fight because he literally could not eat. Back then, pancreatic cancer was a hundred percent death sentence and it was quick, but I didn't know this in my mind. I thought maybe they would get him a treatment and they were going to maybe somehow come through it. I wasn't schooled on the nature of the whole thing. So, I'm home for about a week, week and a half, and my brother's talking about leaving college, and my dad, I remember remember laying with my dad and having the thought, like, give me the cancer, like, give me, give it to me, like, that, my dad was my hero, my number one, he was, like, the dude you just look up to because of love, like, just, like, the love that he had for everybody, I just looked at him like some kind of superhero, I really did, and I don't, you know, I just... There was no, I never looked at like Michael Jordan as a hero or Elvis as a hero or, you know, fucking Justin Bieber. I, I don't look at like that celebrity shit. I know some celebrities. They ain't heroes. You know what I mean? If you do good, you do it in private and you don't need to tell everybody. But my hero was right there in my house growing up. And I'm, that's why me and my brother, you know, are the way we are because of my dad. So my dad's hooked on the oxygen machine, and the next morning, one morning, my dad calls me into the room. He says, Michael, you know, business is going to have to continue here. We're going to have to keep this business going. I need you to go in your mom's closet and get the box above her shoes. Now, I didn't know we had a box in the, above the shoes. So I go in my mom's closet. I go in her shoe above the shoes, and there's a shoe box. I grab the shoebox, I come down, there's probably fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in a shoebox. I'm like, oh my God. First of all, I'm thinking, how did I not know about the shoebox? I definitely would have taken some money along my way if I knew there was a shoebox. I didn't know there was a shoebox. I knew there was a hundred here, a hundred there, like every now and then a sock drawer, an underwear drawer. You know, I'd call my mom or dad when they were out of town, do you mind if I take a hundred? Go ahead, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't know about the box. And this is how, you know, gangster my dad was without being a gangster. He had the secret box, never even told his kids about it. I don't even know if my mom knew about the box. So I get the box, and my dad tells me, okay, Michael, take $15,000 and put it in an envelope. And so I take 15000 I count out 15000 out, and I put it in an envelope, and I got the 15000 I go, I put the box, the rest of the money back in the closet. My dad gets dressed, and it's a real sad scene because he's lost a ton of weight. He's just, he's checked out a little bit mentally. He's pissed off. He's super pissed. He doesn't want to leave the earth yet. He just does not want to go. He's having too much fun in life. He just made a bunch of money in his life the last few years. He's only 47 years old. It's just not fair on any level. It's fucking terrible. And, you know, my dad dying from this disease is really what messed me up in relationships. It's what made me work out all the time because the fear of dying. I can openly admit that, you know, that event got me like it got me yeah I could go to therapy yeah I could do this it's okay I'm good I'm great I'm doing good but in certain parts of my life it absolutely affected me and I started to look at relationships as death as like the finality and I just you either you either go right into a relationship and you lock in or you go the other way and I went the other way freedom you know I don't want to get close to anybody else that's going to be gone it was real mentally fucked up so I got 15000 in an envelope. My dad's hooked on oxygen. He tells my brother to go start the car. 
tells us both, let's go, we're going to get in the car, we're going down to 8 Mile, we're going to go meet Vern. Vern was a guy that used to run um, uh, a scrapyard for us. He used to run a scrapyard. And I almost don't like saying his name, and maybe I'll edit it out, but there was nothing, nothing, nothing illegal is happening now. This is just the way business is done, right? So we're going to get, I got 15000 in the envelope. We're going to go see this guy down on 8 Mile. When we get down there, Michael, you're going to go inside. You're not going to tell him that I'm here. You're going to go in. He's going to tell you what to do. You're going to hand him the money because I owe him money for the last pickup of the brass, and we're going to get going. And the reason I'm just even telling this story is to show you that even when a man, a real man, a, a person, a, a human being, this could be a man or a woman, even when they're at the tail end of their life, they're still making sure that their family's okay and that business can flow and continue and that their family can understand that if you want to continue this company or keep doing business, the way you're going to be okay is just always make sure that you take care of the people that take care of you. So I got 15000 in the envelope. I'm on my way down there. We're going down. We drive down 8 Mile. I pull into the yard. I'm kind of thinking, like, How's they, how are they not going to know you're here? My dad says, just go in. Don't tell anybody I'm here and handle business. I walk in, and I walk right into the yard, and I've been there 100 times. I go past the concrete and the dark, dim light. There's no bright lights in scrap metal yards or interiors. I could tell you that. It's cold blue steel and loud machinery popping off, and in the back and the opening is where cars get crushed and magnets pick up cars and you know there's giant steel piles in the one corner and copper coiling in another corner and new steel and old steel steel and mounds of brass and I always it's weird and I could say this for real like I feel comfortable around scrap around not garbage I don't feel good around garbage but I feel cool around like you put me around some railroad tracks, some metal, some a construction site. I'm good. I just it's very strange. It sounds crazy, but like I'm just I feel really comfortable in an industrial environment. Even though when I used to go to work with my dad, we'd go at four o'clock in the morning shoveling brass and scrap metal into barrels and into the truck, and I'd come home, you know, after getting paid great, I'd, I'd be sneezing brown dust. So I knew it wasn't healthy. But I go inside and I see the guy sitting behind the desk and he knows me for years and he says, hey, Michael, how you doing? And how's your dad? And I kind of half lie and say, he's okay. He's okay. You know, he just, you know, he's, he's all right. Thanks for asking. He hands me a yellow uh, construction hat and he puts one on and I put one on and he was an f- awesome guy. He looked kind of like Fred Flintstone, just stocky, strong, little, but like powerful big head. And he put it on his jet black hair with his, you know, work goggles and he just says, follow me. And so I follow him and I got a work, I got a construction hat on and, and he's got the construction hat on, two dudes in yellow hats walking out to the yard. And now we're outside and there's cranes moving and, you know, not many people are out there, but there's mounds of steel and it's, you know, it's a little bit cold. It's like 65 degrees and I can feel it. And he's got his shirt tucked in and I'm in a little bit, maybe a light jacket. And we kind of just, he just kind of walks me out to sort of like the center of the, of the yard. And we're talking, small talk, small talk. And then he just goes, okay, now. And he just says, now. And I knew that that was my cue to hand him the money. And so I hand him 15000 cash in an envelope. And he you know, puts it in his pocket, shakes my hand. Thank you. Let's go back inside. 
And we go back inside and we have a little more small talk. I give him the hat back. We talk about it, this and that. He says, give my, you know, give my love to your mom and dad and I hope I see your dad soon. And I, I can't really remember if he knew that my dad was sick, but the word was kind of getting out, you know, in the neighbor, in the area that, you know, Sam was, was not feeling well. And the scrap metal business is such a cutthroat business that there were probably, I, I know for a fact, actually, there were some sharks swimming around and, and waiting for my dad to pass so that they could try to scoop up and come in on our, 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 you know, our accounts. Because in the scrap metal business, your accounts, this was not contract. This was a handshake. Come get our scrap metal. Get this junk out of here. Get paid and get out of our way and make sure business can continue smoothly. That's why a scrap man was so important because... You know, if you're stamp if you're stamping out car parts and it's twenty four seven car parts, you got a ton of scrap coming, and you want to get that scrap moving, get it out of there, so your place is clean, and you can you know you can keep your manufactured parts that you're getting paid for from the auto industry. You could keep them flowing. So, the the middleman scrap man was a very important part of this whole world, and it still is. Obviously, scrap metal is gigantic. You can see the trades with Russia, China, and you know what we're doing on a global scale with scrap. But my dad was just a peddler. He was a small-time guy, but he was making a great living for himself and his family. And so we get back in the car, and every business is taken care of. My dad says, how'd it go? I said, it went great. Everything's good. I gave him the money. He asked about you. Cool. We go home. And we don't even really talk about that anymore. We just go home and, you know, my dad gets back in bed. And the next day, my dad's friends from the Southwood Athletic Club come over. And this is like, think about it if you got friends that you're really tight with and God forbid one of them has a problem and his health goes bad and this is going to be the end of his life. You want to just, you want to give your love to your friends. And my dad's friends showed up and they brought a big screen TV into my dad's bedroom and his two or three of his boys brought robes because they were so used to being at the Southwood Athletic Club and just being around each other and talking shit that they just put on robes and they and three of my dad's buddies and they just sat there in his bed and they watched TV. And it's just, it's a scene I'll never forget, even though my mom was upset because the TV was so heavy that she was like, why are you bringing this TV in? And my dad's best friend at the time was Dr. Freddie Lorenz, who was the fight doctor for the Kronk boxing team. And Freddie was the doctor for Tommy Hearns, Milt McCrory, Hilmer Kenty, um, any of the fighters that came up through there, the Obakars later in the day, you know, later in life, and, uh, you know, Caveman Lee, and he was Emmanuel Stewart, the world-famous trainer who you saw on HBO many times. He was his, he was, he was Emmanuel's best friend. And so, you know, my dad ran with like a super cool legend crew. They just happened to be from a city that wasn't boisterous and loud about it. So like New York, you know, if somebody's doing something in New York, you hear about it because they're flashier and they like the bravado and the ego's bigger. But Detroit was notorious for just being super powerful and super quiet, which is what I like. Like, that's just the, my style. Like, you know, I even go to the comedy store and people are like, I didn't even know you directed a movie. I'm like, yeah, bro, I'm not the dude that comes up here like every other dude, clown, yelling credits out of his mouth. You know what I mean? I'm in the cut. Just working. I like the blue collar, low pro vibe of everything. That's just in my DNA. It's what I like. It's, I'm just never going to be that guy. And I know it's not really that great of a business acumen to have because in entertainment, it's all about promotion, marketing, marketing, promotion. 
but I'm just trying to be the dopest writer, comedian that I can be and honor my dad's memory and just really trick the system and go, and I've been doing it for years now. I'm just making a living, not Brad, you know, I'm not really shouting my name out and I'm just doing good enough work that people keep hiring me. And I'll ride that out until let somebody else put me up on the billboard or talk about me. I got, I got other people talking about me. You know, I know the crew I run in. I know the talent level of my friends that have respect. So I'm with the quiet Detroit-style low-pro shit. It's not great in L.A. because even dating, girls are like, you don't really live large and you don't really, I don't know, but like, don't worry about it. There's money in the bank, and trust me when I tell you that the dude who you just went on a date with, the four-door Mercedes guy with the seats that you know hug you when you turn, I'm doing better. It just doesn't look like it. Anyway, back to the story. So we come back. My dad's friends are there. They leave, and I'm thinking to myself that my dad probably has you know four months to live, and I'm just going to go back to college for a couple weeks, and I'm going to get my clothes, and I'm going to come back. And the next day, I tell my dad, first I tell my dad I'm going to quit college too. And my dad's like, no, you're not. The hell you are. You're going to college. You're getting your degree. And it's funny because I remember thinking, having the thought while he was saying this, that I don't know if my dad meant that. Like, I don't know if he viewed college as like the most important thing. He didn't go to college. He went and he played football at Arizona State for like two weeks had no money, and he had to come home and go to work and support, try to get a family life going. So I don't know, man, if my dad, it felt like it was like just the thing to say, go get your college degree. But he probably did feel that way because my dad didn't even want us going into the scrap metal business after a while because my dad always said, go for your dreams. Do whatever the hell you want in life. You can do anything. Don't fucking listen to anybody. Just pick something, be great at it, and go do it. My dad was all about that. He felt that way about everybody and everything that you had potential. And he was never like strict. He just was, he was just like, go, be free, fly, like fucking do it. Like I was weird. I mean, I had a stick, I had a bumper sticker on my car that said, why be normal? I didn't grow up in a normal, it wasn't normal. But my dad, towards the end of his life, you know, he had fought tooth and nail and made the relationships probably from the Southwood Athletic Club to be clean and clear and, you know, make a great living for himself in the scrap metal business. And his other best friend down the street was in the IRS. So I know that my dad, no matter what was coming down the pipe, he always had the, he always knew what was up because my dad's best friend, Jerry, who they'd go to a movie every week together. And I'm still good friends with his kids to this day. You know, I think he, you know, tell him how to operate with the so much cash that he was dealing with. Anyway, I tell my dad I'm not going to college. He says, bullshit, you're going back. I decide I'm going to go back to school for a couple weeks, get my clothing, and come back. And this is, uh, this is something that I could never really get over, and I'll never get over it. And it's I look at myself, I don't know, I feel like a coward. I don't know why. Everyone's like, there's no reason for you to feel that way. But there's a part of me that just can never, I just don't understand what was in my mind. Maybe the pain was so heavy I wanted to get away, but I go to get on an airplane. The next day, I am going to fly back to Tucson, Arizona, go back to U of A. I'm going to get my stuff and come back in a week. I get on the airplane. I leave my mom's house. I get on the plane. I got a layover in Chicago. When I get to Chicago, I get off the plane for my one-hour layover, and there is an announcement over the micro over the system. And I'm, I don't even know if they do this anymore, but literally at Midway Airport, 
I hear Michael Young, please pick up a red phone. Michael Young, please pick up a red phone. And now like my world's basically spinning and my mouth's getting dry and I'm getting nauseous and I'm kind of thinking this is surreal, completely surreal and everything's kind of going blank on me. And I go to a red phone and I pick it up and they connect me and it's my mom and my mom is just crying. She's just sobbing on the phone and she's like, get on the next plane and get back here. Just get on the next plane and get back here. And she's not like saying what happened, but I'm thinking I know what happened. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I can't believe that my dad passed away while I was on an airplane going back to school. Like this is, I just left him, you know, an hour ago. This can't be. And so I get on the airplane and I head back to Detroit and we're coming in for landing in Detroit. And I'll never forget this. And the plane goes down. We're about to land. And the plane takes back off. It, It takes back off. It doesn't land. So now I'm like double nervous. And the pilot comes on and he goes, I don't know if anybody saw that dog out there on the runway, but there was a dog on the runway. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, what? fucking run that dog over. Like, you're going to risk a whole plane full of people on a dog? You, this can't be happening. Anyway, long story short, we circle, we land, I get out, I go to the baggage claim and I see my Uncle Skip, rest in peace. And it's my uncle Skip, and Skip is my uncle, and he's, you know, big fella, 350, 420 pounds, always been a big fella, you know, love football, love gambling, love people, was also an artist, interior decorator, just like a badass, you know, I know my mom might have had beef later in life with him, but I love my uncle Skip, and, I, and this is a, a terrible, terrible thing for him to have to do. And I see my uncle Skip, and he hugs me. And I'm kind of crying, I'm half crying, and I'm saying, you know, what's going on, what's going on? And he just kind of hugs me, and he now he starts crying heavily, and he just tells me, you know, your dad passed away about an hour ago, or whatever, two hours ago. And now it's just, you know, I'm crumbled, I'm crushed, devastated, I start really sobbing. I get in the car, we drive back to my mom's house, and there's already 20 cars in the street. There's 20 cars in the street. The house is full of people. I walk in. I see my mom. I see my brother. We collapse basically in each other's arms. And, you know, I'm not telling this to create you guys to cry. I really was just telling you this story about where I come from and who I am because of my dad, because of the fact that he still wanted to make sure that his family was okay when he was gone. He knew he was dying. He's still his number one priority. Make sure the family's okay. This is someone who loved his family beyond. And I'll just say this to you. If you have any relationship with your parents or your siblings or your brothers or your fa- if you have any relationship and you haven't talked to them in a while, give them a call, say something to them, tell them you love them. You know, even if they know it, you don't have to say I love you. Some people are not I love you people. My family, we are I love you people because we're so used to people not being there the next day out of nowhere. We say I love you all the time. We throw it out there, but we mean it but we just happen to be a real I love you family. So I tell you this story to let you know who the F is Mike Young. He's Sam Young's kid. And, you know, I'll tell you in another episode sort of how we got the business back going, but I kind of, I came home and my brother quit college and he figured out my dad's business and he ran the business for a while. And I, again, feeling like a coward, I went back and I finished college and I got my degree. And part of me, 
you know, still to this day thinks I should have never gone back to school because what did I do? Become a comedian and a writer and a performer and a director. Did I need college for that? Absolutely not. But I did it. And to be honest, unless you're a lawyer or a doctor, I have no feeling about I have no feeling about finishing school other than the best friends I ever made in my life I really made over there in school, you know, and my boys to this day, Zach and Todd and Dean and Mike and, you know, and Stu and Jordy and Buzzy, the crew that I met and became tight with, I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I just wanted to tell you, you know, what it was like being the son of somebody who you know, was a man of principle and somebody who really lived and, and died by that. And, uh, yeah, that was, that's a story I wanted to tell, you know, my podcast used to be called stories that need to be told. And I changed it to who the F is Mike Young, but that was who the F is Mike Young telling a story that needed to be told. All right. Peace. Take me back when I was a kid. Take me Never back had now. to worry about what I did. The one time I'm a man two. now. Check it out. Now. Gotta the get it down. Sound. No time for fun down now. now. Take me back uh, when I was a kid. Two. Never had to worry about what back. I Coming did. Coming back for you. But I'm a man now. Where we going now?